Welcome to the Free Speech Union Podcast. I'm Dane Giroux. At the Free Speech Union, we've been called every name under the sun. I've been called a Nazi and a commie. Sometimes I wish my name callers would all get together and make up their minds about what we are, because it all becomes very confusing. But it is also a sign that we are doing something right. If both sides are upset at us at various points, this says that we are acting impartially. Free speech advocacy is seldomly about the issue. It is a principle, and that is what we are defending. What our detractors also struggle to accept is that, as censorship always invites a backlash, you could see our work as helping the censor better communicate their positions, if only they were prepared to listen. This is why I once asserted to Executive Director of the Auckland Pride Festival, Max Tweedy, that I was a far better advocate for the trans community than he will ever be, and challenged him to a debate on this. He declined. But I stand by this. And today we'll be discussing a topic that is illustrative of how censorship around an issue has impacted the health of those that the would-be censors have sought to protect, to the point that we now have a scandal on our hands and a high-profile health clinic being shut down. Here with us to discuss this and many other things is Suzanne Levy, the new spokeswoman for Speak Up for Women. Kia ora, Suzanne. Kia ora. So let's start with your new role. What is it, and what does this mean for your organisation, which our uh, followers should be pretty familiar with by now, all the all the trouble you've brought our way? Oh, yes, we are. Just a bunch of troublemakers, really. Um, so Speak Up for Women formed a few years ago specifically to fight the birth, death and marriages uh, relationships registration legislation that uh, makes it possible for somebody to change the sex on their birth certificate with a simple uh, statutory declaration rather than any sort of uh, family court process. So we were we were against that. Um, I came in to speak up for women during that process. Uh, we had a fantastic leadership team at that stage and they, uh, after the legislation was, was passed, um, they are all um, in need of a break. Uh, they've worked incredibly hard. Uh, it must have taken a toll on their lives and their families, and they're taking a, a well-deserved rest. So we've formed a new team. Uh, I'm one of the spokeswomen. The other spokeswoman is Katrina Biggs. And we have a small team, a small leadership team. Um, and we have reformed, uh, and we're fighting. Uh, our, our main idea is that we speak up for women because sex matters. So... We believe um, that there are lots of times when sex doesn't matter, but the times when it does matter are really, really important. So our main focus is those times and those services and those spaces where it really matters that uh, women have space uh, away from away from men. So that, that's kind of our, our new focus. Uh, we've launched a new website, which is the same, the same domain, speakupforwomen.nz. We have, um, we've relaunched our Facebook page, 
we have lots of information on there and we're posting content that's relevant to um, sex matters, to um, single-sex spaces, to transgender ideology in schools. Um, we work with other organisations such as Save Women Sports, Resist Gender Education, other organisations who have a similar focus on keeping the idea that sex matters um, up there. So the bill did pass uh, changes to the birth, deaths and, and marriages bill. So were you able to make any gains there? Uh, yes, we were. Uh, there's, a, there's a clause that was uh, entered into the new legislation and it, it started off as Clause 82 uh, and it's now 79-2. And what, what it says is that regardless of a birth certificate, um, you're able to establish somebody's somebody's sex by any other means. So in some ways it kind of relegates the birth certificate to a, a fairly um, poor value document in terms of what it actually says about somebody. It means that um, you can still establish somebody's sex based on any other factors that you might have available available to you as well as birth certificate, which is realistic because people don't generally carry their birth certificates around, um, you know, waiting to use them to prove what sex they are or what sex they're, they're not. So it really um, takes the emphasis and some of the value away from a birth certificate as a document that establishes your sex. Um, so, yes, so we're pretty happy with that, with the fact that that clause was... Um, implemented. Does that mean that women can say this is a safe space and we are identifying you as not a woman and you cannot enter this space? Yes, um, we believe that it does. So um, obviously the, the Human Rights Act is, is there to um, prevent discrimination, but it has um, several areas where it, it, it says that it's legal to discriminate on the basis of sex. And there, there aren't a huge number of areas, but they're very important areas. And they're things like, um, well, sports is one of them. Um, there's uh, accommodation. There's schooling. There's um, services such as uh, counselling of a personal nature, which is pretty much most counselling, I would, I would argue. Um, so th those sorts of areas, you are allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. And we sort of, we're finding that there are two, there are two groups. There are the... Um, the groups that that don't wish to use the Human Rights Act, they, they want to provide services that include um, transgender women um, as, as women. Um, so we are mainly concerned with the groups that do want to provide single-sex services. Um, and some of these groups have been, have been told that they are not allowed to discriminate, that transgender women... Um, are protected under the Human Rights Act and that Human Rights Act includes gender as a protected category. Now, that's as far as we're concerned, that is still up for debate and is yet to be tested. But this uh, Clause 79.2 does go some way towards making us feel that there is still protection on the basis of sex um, and not not sex determined by a birth certificate, but sex determined by all the other things that we use all the time to establish somebody's sex. For me listening to you now, that sounds like a complete win for you guys, but you're saying it goes some way. So I'm a little confused there, and maybe the law and practice will be confusing. And yeah, this this could end, this could 
actually end up being quite fraught, couldn't it? I think it will. It will require some some testing. It, it's um, you know I think it will require a discrimination case where somebody has to say has to you know determine in law that it still is okay to discriminate on the basis of sex. Uh, we're not sure what that test case will be or who it will be or what it will be about, um, but that's kind of where we feel things are things are heading. Um, it'll take someone to stand up and say that they do, either somebody does want to discriminate on the basis of sex um, or it'll be a person who feels they've been discriminated against by the fact that they haven't had a single-sex service available to them. So it's maybe perhaps somebody using... Um, a rape crisis centre or a woman's refuge um, who has found, you know, when they've gone to use that service that it's not fit for purpose due to the fact that perhaps the, you know, the, the rape counsellor is a biological male and that that doesn't doesn't work for them. Um, so we're not we're not 100% sure what's, what's involved and where this is going to go. We've just kind of... Um, hit the ground running really and we're working out what we're going to do, where we're going to take it. But we are looking at um, publishing some some guidelines on how we see the Human Rights Act and this new legislation interacting, what we think it means, how we can guide the people who do wish to provide single-sex services, uh, you know, who are, in some ways I feel they're, they're being misled, they're, they're being told that they're not, uh, not allowed to discriminate um, and we're not sure that's true. We don't. We don't think that that is true. We think there is room for for them to still discriminate. Discriminate's a, a terrible word. It's the one that the Human Rights Act uses to describe the um, ability to exclude somebody on the basis of sex. Um, so what we're really talking about are spaces where you would, um, where most people would assume it was reasonable and practical to have a single-sex space, such as a rape crisis centre um, or a women's refuge or, you know, a girls' boarding school, those sorts of things where most people would say, yeah, I can see why you would want, you know, you wouldn't want males in those spaces. Um, that, that are the sorts of things we're talking about. I'm not a lawyer, and there, there may be lawyers screaming at the at the at the phone or, or whatever they're listening to this podcast on right now. But uh, it feels to me like uh, this is the definition of bad law, isn't it? Because we don't know where the cards are going to fall, and it just seems like I mean, this was this was the, the con, exactly the same concern we had with the hate speech laws. It was going to be one of those scenarios where you could get a knock on your door and be arrested and have no clue whether or not you committed a crime. Now, most people who are arrested have a pretty good idea of what they did or what they're being accused of. They may be able to challenge it, but they've got some idea. But it feels here where that we, people on, on both sides, actually, aren't really – they're not going to have a lot of – um. Uh, confidence, are they? Yeah, I talked to a few lawyers about this, and nobody said that it's bad law. I think it's just yet to be tested. Um, the they've described that the clause seventy nine two as having some teeth, um, and it's it's really whether how those teeth are used, um, how it's actually going to apply, um, and you know it, it 
will take some sort of a, a, a pushback or test to the Human Rights Commission to say, you know, you're, you're saying that um, the Human Rights Act's talking about gender when it's talking about sex. Um, we don't, you know, we don't believe you. We don't agree. Um, and it, it's how that, how that plays out and the, you know, the ramifications of that, what, what result do we end up with? Um, and then, you know, you've got different, you know, you know people like um, corrections, they're, they're sort of building their own regulations around how, how they're going to decide where, um, where male prisoners are housed if they say that they identify as a woman, um, those sorts mm. of things. So you've got different, different organisations who have different interests in it. Um, but we're, we're mainly concerned with the people who do want to provide, who generally want to provide women's only spaces um, but feel that they're, they're not allowed to or they've been told that they're not allowed to. That's our kind of, that's our focus in terms of, of sex matters. We have other, you know, other things we're focusing on as well, but that's in terms of the sex matters and the single sex spaces, I think they would be our main, um, our main audience, the people who, who wish to provide those spaces because you know the Human Rights Act doesn't say you have to provide them. It just says if you wish to, you you're allowed to, under these you know certain circumstances. So there are there are groups out there who who want to provide um, you know so-called women spaces that actually include men, and they they're allowed to do that. Um, yeah, it's the groups that don't want to do that that we're interested in. Okay, we're interested in helping them and guiding them and making sure they've got good good information to make the decisions on. So moving along to the thrust of um, my introduction, there was a piece that ran on RNZ, uh, I'm, I'm sure you would have seen it, or, or about uh, trans men who weren't being contacted about cervical smears. Yeah. And now this was causing a lot of concern because uh, obviously, you know, the, the, these are, are biological women who are exposing themselves to serious illness if not death, by not getting their checkups. And it struck me that that was a good example of where the uh, trepidation around the use of certain words and how there are factions in society scaring us off certain, you know, using these words in, in, in different concepts are really potentially seriously harming the people that they profess to be protecting. So we'll get on to the Tavistock Clinic as well, but a bit of, bit of feedback from you on that case. I think language is, is um, an absolute minefield and it's so important. And I think um, there are ways that you can recognise that a trans man doesn't want to be referred to as a woman um, while still maintaining some safety around the medical um, or health services that, that that person can receive. And to me, it doesn't seem extraordinary to imagine a, a, a health system that's capable of recording biological sex and uh, gender identity, you know, on a, in a patient's records, so that uh, biological sex is, is sitting there um, and, and is used to decide whether that person is, is called up for a for a smear or for a prostate check. Um, it, it doesn't seem like rocket science to me. To me, it's really frightening <laughs> that they could have been swayed by that by, by this sort of activism. You would have thought that a health system 
would have been would, would would just would not have been interested at all in in any of this sort of you know activism around you know correct speak and and stuff like that because of the concerns for health. So it's pretty frightening, isn't it? No, it is very frightening that that you know the the concept that biological sex is fixed, it's real and it can't be changed, and all of those however many ways you want to say the same thing. Um, yeah, I would have thought that the medical profession would have been, you know, the absolute last bastion of that. They wouldn't be letting that go easily. But it's it is very strange. It's it's um at the same time I think that a um a, a transgender man would be aware of their health needs. I would um I, I find it slightly slightly confusing that that person wasn't aware that they would need a smear. Um, so I, I think, you know, in some ways you have to be responsible for your own healthcare a wee bit as well. Well, you know, you do. And, yeah. and if they're, I mean, well, you know, I mean, I'm going to really <laughs> sound like an ignoramus here, but when it comes to cervical smears, how often do women get them? Um, I think younger women these days less, less often because there's been a, um, a, vaccine HPV vaccine which I think does change things a little bit but for um someone like me who's um you know I might be 50 um it's I think it's every every two or three years this is common knowledge to women um I would say so yes I think it's it's something that you're you know that your doctor would definitely bring up I mean you get there's a register and you get a reminder that you you're due for smear and they follow up quite a lot too they do pester you about it um you know if you don't kind of ring in within three minutes but um so I, I think there would be an awareness that it was required um there was a case in the UK um is reported on recently I'm not sure exactly when it was there's a, a transgender man who presented in the emergency department with um stomach pains and all sorts of things happening uh, and made no declaration that they were a biological woman. And they were actually pregnant, and the baby, they lost the baby. Um, and it was sort of an example of there being no record for the person dealing with the trans man that they were a biological woman, and they would have treated him or her differently, depend, you know, not having that information. Obviously, it, it, it's, um, it does actually happen, you know, you know that women turn up at, at hospital in ED in extreme pain and it turns out that they they have a pregnancy that they were unaware of. So it's something that I imagine ED nurses do actually consider when they've got a, a female um, patient in front of them. And sadly, in, in that case, that's not what they thought because they didn't know that the person was female. And, and, and the person obviously didn't, didn't tell them? I mean, kind of told them. It sound, no, I'd say they didn't tell them, but I would hope, and, and I can understand somebody with with um, gender dysphoria isn't going to want to, to say, oh, hey, look, I know I look like a man, but I'm actually, I'm actually a biological woman. That's not something I would expect them to want to do. But I would expect that their health record um, would be, it would be clear to the person looking at the record that they were a biological a biological woman um and it doesn't have to be something they say out loud it doesn't if you're thinking about well there is a generation 
of trans women who would have no problem saying that to a health professional. This is an ideological shift where they've decided that no, that that they are a woman and that they don't need to make these sorts of declarations anymore. Um, but but you know, I've spoken to trans people of a, of a different generation, and they they accept they are biologically male still. And I mean, for reason and and yeah, and health is. <laughs> a really good reason why you'd want to sort of. No, uh, I, I agree. I agree that um, in lots of cases, um, and certainly in the past, there was a, a, a much, much more um, open discussion about the fact that a transgender woman is a is a male. Um, and certainly, when I was, um, you know, when I was younger, I'm a lesbian, so I spent a bit of time um, in gay and lesbian bars and. Transsexual women were were there, and there was no there was no question that they were that they were men. Um, and you know, they it's not something they ever tried to tried to hide or pretend wasn't the truth. Where I think when you're talking about young women now, um, they're very focused on on the concept of you know um, being misgendered or. Um, you know, being dead named or all of those things. That those things as part of this ideology are put up there as being literal violence. So I, I agree, it's the it's the ideological thing that is the problem. Um, but I I just can cannot see why um, why a medical record cannot hold confidential information. Um, you know, along the same lines of something that tells them that you've had a had your appendix out when you were four, that also says, oh, by the way, this you know this person is a biological woman. Health is one of these um, issues where a subjective reading of yourself, uh, you know, isn't really necessarily going to help you in terms of diagnoses and and all that kind of stuff. And again, you know, I mean, there's a huge coercive element to a lot of this ideology and. Like I said in my introduction, uh, if we clean that stuff up, uh, less trans people would potentially be harmed. And that's what a lot of our detractors don't understand. This is as much about protecting these people and their health as anything else, um, getting rid of this coercive element, which is just really, um, just not really serving anyone, I don't think. Well, I think the idea that people, um, you know, that people, hate hate you because you're trans or you know wish that you didn't exist or declare that you don't exist um i that that is certainly not doing anyone any favors a it's not true and b it's it's dangerous it's it's planting ideas for these these kids or young people that there's this sort of group of people out here out there who who wish them harm who don't have their best interests at heart um and it is it is really sad. So that's why I say that I can I can see why a young trans man isn't going to front up to ED and say, um, you know, I've um, I've got this pain. Um, you know, I, I've as it happens, I've I, I still menstruate, but I haven't had a period because I'm actually a biological woman. I can understand why that conversation is not going to happen. And even, you know, I can I can see how how a young person <clears throat> would find that really really difficult 
if they'd got themselves into the situation in the position where they were um, trying to pass as a male and they were living like that. Um, so that's why I, I, I see a place for just for, I guess, medical medical honesty, like a, a, a medical record that it seems so simple that you could you could take all of that away just by saying it's in your record that you're a, that you're a female. We don't have to talk about it. The person with that information doesn't have to say to the person, "Oh, you've come in here and we thought you were a bloke, but you're a you're a woman, so you're pregnant." It doesn't have to be like that. It's it's um it's possible for that you know in that case the ED nurse to look at the person's record and and work out what they might be dealing with and deal with it um, in a sympathetic nice way. Now, the Tavistock Clinic, can you uh, just tell our listeners about that and what's happened here? Because it's quite a big story, isn't it? And it's got interesting ramifications for us because we seem to be a couple of years behind uh, a lot of what's happening around the world now. There's, there's definitely been some ripples here when it comes to safety and health. Um, things could be changing a little, but we're probably going to be a bit slower on the uptake for this, aren't we? So are, are you able to, I mean, you tell me whether my assessment is correct or not, but also are you able just to give us a little bit of a, a primer on the Tavistock Clinic and what and the developments that have happened? Um, yeah, firstly, I'd say that that's a, an understatement to say that we're a little bit behind. At the moment, our media are not even reporting on the fact that the Tavistock Clinic is has, you know, A, that it was under investigation or B, that it's now set to close um, and you know it does it does have implications in New Zealand or it should have implications in New Zealand sorry Suzanne T- yeah. the Tavistock clinic is, is a gender it's the gender it's it's a UK um, NHS g- g- yeah gender identif- identity service so it's called the um, GIDS clinic yeah gender identity service um, and it's been looking after the um, healthcare for gender-confused, gender-dysphoric young people for quite some time. And it's it's been under investigation. There have been various uh, whistleblowers. There's been concern about the lack of follow-up care, the lack of, um, the lack of record-keeping in general. Um, there's been concern about the massive rise in the number of young people using the clinic, um, the... And also the type of the type of young person. Um, there's been all sorts of um, all sorts of inquiries. And recently there was a, a review done by Dr. Hilary Cass, so it's known as the, the Cass report. Um, and the result of that review is that the Tavistock Clinic will be closing next year, and the uh, care for these young people will be put into the various uh, paediatric hospitals around the country so there'll be more um but it'll be more more wraparound care um and and not treat the, the gender side of things won't just be treated in an isolated way it'll be treated along with um general health and mental health at the same time which is i think what what has been lacking so what they've said is that um the affirmation model of gender health care is is not necessarily um, this is probably uh, toning it down as well, but I don't want to overstate. Um, it's not necessarily the best the best approach for young people. 
So, so could you just unpack what the affirming model is so people really know what, what we're talking about? I, I mean, I can feed into it a bit because um, I, I've read a couple of books on it now. Um, but, yeah, it would be really good to hear um, you just um, unpack that. What it means to, to affirm somebody's gender is is just to, to not question so much why that person might be feeling the way they do about their gender. So it's, it's um, if, I, if I just came to you and said, um, Dane, I'm, I've decided I'm a, I'm a man, you know, this is a different, a different lifetime and you're my doctor and you just say, that's great, Suzanne, and um, let's have a little chat about it. But yes, it sounds like you really do want to change your gender. So here's a prescription and, and we'll go from there kind of thing. And that's probably a slight exaggeration, though, some of the stuff that's come out uh, would suggest that it's not, sadly, an exaggeration. Um, so it's basically, it's kind of the opposite of an ex- ex- exploratory therapy. It's basically saying you take a, a young person's word that they feel they're born in the wrong body and you run with it. And I think there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that's out there where the young people are told that people who don't affirm you don't like you. Yeah. You know, they hate you, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, um, the kind of original best practice for gender health care would have been uh, what they call watchful waiting. And what that's exactly as it sounds. So it's, it's taking a, a child that says that they feel like they're a boy uh, and kind of not, not kind of squashing that, that feeling, but letting it, kind of letting it happen. Um, so, you know, just, just seeing, seeing where it goes. And, you know, I think 80, 80-odd percent of young people that have those feelings do just grow out of it. So watchful waiting has had a, had a place. Well, there's been multiple studies, haven't there, Suzanne, that have, that have or, you know, over, over a couple of decades at least that have said that, or maybe even more, that have said that uh, around 80%, that number stays pretty The similar. official rate, oh, sorry, the, the official rate is between, I think it's 68 and, not, no, 60 and 98%. So it's it's pretty high. Mm. Um, and I have to say, I, I was speaking at the at a conference last week um, about this, and I one of the reasons I was speaking is because um, I was a gender non-conforming child. I desperately wanted to be a boy. Um, I I had a I was I made my family call me Jonathan. I wouldn't wear girls' clothes. I only played with boys really. Um, I was pretty pretty into being a boy. Um, and I I kind of compare my my situation and how I felt um, with what I hear about young girls today who you know who are often transitioned and I look at what they say about how they feel and how I remember feeling Um, and it really worries me because I I have no doubt that if I was alive if I was 10 or 6 or whatever now I would be transitioned I would be I wouldn't stand a chance Um, so that's what I that's what I was speaking about so the the thing is that now that um, watchful waiting just really doesn't work anymore because whilst the parents are waiting and watching, the child is inventing themselves online um, and continuing with their new identity. Mm, that's really interesting because it doesn't offer a, a lot of, um, yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not sort of 
clear what the alternative, a healthy alternative is going to be. The alternative that is encouraged um, in, in Britain um, and hopefully eventually here is called a, a gender exploration therapy. And that's sort of, it's again, it's what it says it is. It takes a, a, a child who feels um, at odds with them with themselves um, and feels like that like they were born in the wrong body um, and it explores the reasons the reasons around that and and kind of seeks to help them help them work through some of those issues without um, you know medicalization such as in a girl's case testosterone or you know puberty blockers do you think censorship has has played a, a a role, and what? How did we fall into a culture at a clinic like that where they would only affirm and they and they weren't interested in exploration? Did censorship play a role there? Because you talked about whistleblowers. Some of these people, you know, I, I've read about them on you know, through Twitter and and different, you know, heard them on podcasts. Some of the whistleblowers, they are so maligned, smeared. People just go out of their way to completely character assassinate these people who are who are asking just for things like exploration. If people weren't prepared to just go with the affirmation model one hundred percent, you know, you're really exposing yourself to a, a lot of grief. So censorship was at the core of this, wasn't wasn't it? I can't really comment on the censorship aspect of how Tavistock got to the point that it got to. Um, but what I would say is that the New Zealand media who are ignoring the the developments in not only in the UK but in, you know, Sweden who have, have changed their model, they were like at the forefront of, of the affirmation type type care. Um, Finland are the same, um, France have rolled it back, um, you know, obviously UK have rolled it back. In the US, there was a, a thing a week or so ago about the FDA, um, you know, their statement on puberty blockers and whether or not they're safe. Um, so what I would say is that, in a way, the mainstream media here are censoring what we're being told. And it does surprise me because it seems that the more that goes on, on the, in the rest of the world um, that New Zealand ignores the worse it's going to be because it's developing into um, quite the scandal. Uh, it's going to be more than an unfortunate experiment. Uh, and it's not like they can say they didn't know. Um, you know, we, our Ministry of Health still have it on their website that puberty blockers are safe and reversible, which it just astounds me. Even if they just took the statement down, they don't have to say, you know, they're not safe and are not reversible. They could just remove remove the statement. Because that is a statement now that, that many ministries of health around the world completely refute. Is that, is that the case? Um, yeah. I mean, they, they're certainly very, very nervous about it. Um, it's, and it's quite, there's quite a big difference in saying, saying nothing and making an affirmative statement that something is safe and reversible where, you know, they're not, they're not required to make that statement. It's it's quite it's quite extreme. It's quite an extreme positive position about something that there's really no research or or evidence to to back up. In fact, you know, a lot of people would say there's evidence and research to that that is against it. Um, I'm sure there is, but so it's quite extraordinary that they're still saying that. 
it's extraordinary that um, the media aren't exposing it. They're not even reporting that the Tavistock Clinic is closing. They did report on a case last year. There's a, um, a woman called Kira Bell who took the Tavistock to court um, to do with her her own care, which um, she was she was she's now detransitioned, but she was given uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and I think had a double mastectomy, which she later regretted and she had, you know, issues that she now realises were not related to her being a boy um, and they weren't explored. And she's one of the people who's responsible for the Tavistock being, you know, the information being, being out there. Yeah, so it does surprise me that our media are so quiet. This is one of those situations where... And and there's a lot, and I've I've asked this question (laughs) concerning a few topics now on the podcast, and that is, do the activists know that they are hiding the truth, or do they honestly believe they are correct? Like like Byron Clark, for instance, you know, the the so-called far-right researcher, he will often tweet and retweet a thread about how gender critical feminists are carrying water for Nazis because uh, of, of of the the Nazi attitude, you know, uh, actual Nazis like the Third Reich, like. Um, yeah, I, I know what actual Nazis are. <laughs> well, yeah, well, some people may say, well, Nazis, everyone's a Nazi, you know, today. Um, uh, because of their attitudes towards the um, uh, the the trans community, you know, in Germany at the time. I, I mean, of course, you know, he, he would identify as, as being on, on the hard left. I, I, I don't think he's very left-wing at all in a lot of what he says. But, um, I mean, Fidel Castro practised uh, shock treatment uh, against homosexuals in, in, in trans community in Cuba. No one really brings that up. But anyway, that's, that's by the by. But I, I do not believe for a second he actually thinks that gender-critical feminists most of whom he would know are on the left. He would even recognize some of the names as people who have been unionists and so forth. He knows it's a slur, I think. But then again, maybe not. Maybe he really believes it. I mean, I I can't read minds and and shouldn't pretend that I can. So this is what I want to know. I mean, because if they know and and they're not saying anything and and they're just hoping (laughs) that everything turns out okay, they're really exposing these young people to, to a lot of harm. But they are, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I, I can't claim to know what they know either. Um, I do, I do find it hard to believe that they actually believe we mean these children and young people harm. If you look at your sort of um, typical gender critical feminist, we're left wing. A lot of us are mums. A lot of us are lesbians. Um, but certainly not not all of us, um, and mostly we're we're safeguarding. That's our role, and it seems bizarre to me that people don't don't sort of question that and think, mm, what you know, what are the odds of a a bunch of um, you know left wing mums and uh, mums and women in general who actually mean harm to a bunch of children? I mean, the odds are pretty low. The odds the odds are that we're actually in this because we care about about young people. Well, but they're not really addressing you or, you know, they're just creating phantoms, really. Uh, a lot of the people that protested against some of the talks that, that uh, Speak Up for Women did at council buildings, I, I don't think they would have even realised that you 
you did, and, and even even this discussion today, you know, I would agree with you that the exploration model would be one to use. Now, that means, exploration means that there is still definitely a chance that that, that a transition of some kind would be on the cards. Um, it, we just want to see exploration first to test and make sure that, um, you know, what was happening was, was kosher and was going to stick because the last thing you would think anyone would want would would be to have a person regret something so dramatic in, in only a few years' time. And where are these activists then? You know, <laughs> they're not supporting these people then. So you did accept that some people would be changing their birth certificates. You just wanted – it was the process being removed, which you guys – stood against correct that's that's correct we we were never campaigning to have the ability to change a birth certificate removed um i think um this the spokeswoman at the time would talk they talked about a thing called a social contract and that um around the concept of, of self-id and not necessarily with birth certificates but the idea that if you um you know if i went into a woman's changing room and there was someone in there who looked like they were a man. I would feel, like, you know, a few years ago, I would feel quite confident in going, let's say, at a swimming pool. I'd feel pretty confident in going and talking to the person at the desk and saying, hey, look, there's a, there's a man in the woman's changing room. Um, and I feel confident that that would be kind of dealt with in a way that kept me safe and the other woman safe. Um, the thing with self-ID in general whether or not you change your birth certificate, is that it throws all of that out the window because the answer from the person at reception could well be that person self-IDs as a woman. And that's it. That's conversation over. So it goes beyond birth certificates, but birth certificates are kind of symbolic of it, I believe. So the the I guess the idea that somebody can just self-ID, can they can just say that they feel like they're a woman, whatever that means, and they are a woman, is, is the, that is the issue. Well, it feels to me like we just need to be talking about this. There, there needs to be um, no fear. People need to be able to, from both sides, need to, need to be able to really have a discussion on this. Yeah. Because there will be, there, there is common ground to be found here. I mean, your, your position on um, the, the birth, deaths and marriages bill to me proves that there is common ground to be found here. And once we find that common ground, we can actually protect the trans community in a way that, that we can't now. We can like pre- the, yeah, we can protect everybody. We can, we can protect everybody. We yeah, can, because yeah. right now I think that, and you know, and I said it at the beginning and I'll say it now that a lot of these activists are actually harming the trans community. And, and this to me is a, a perfect example of where uh, censorship and a lack of free speech really ends up becoming an own goal. You know, it, it turns into an old, an own goal and you end up hurting the people that you want to protect. It is becoming, becoming that way. Um, nobody can speak out. Um, we are basically silenced if we, you know, if we try to, try to speak it's you know shut up turf they don't want to hear um which there doesn't seem to be 
an argument. It just they don't want to have an argument. They just want us to not speak. So the um, I was involved in a in a conference last week, which is the uh, Children Adolescents Therapy Association, which is a Nelson group, and they held a conference that was to do with um, transgender ideology, and they had various speakers. They had uh, their keynote speaker was Stella. O'Malley, who's an Irish um, psychotherapist who speaks on this a lot. She's amazing. She, um, you know, if you can ever watch watch or listen to her, then it's definitely worth it. Um, and there was a, a woman called Diana Kenny um, from Australia who's, who spoke about uh, sort of sex development in young people uh, and sexuality and gender in general. Um, this conference, when it was announced in I think it was about June. It was just shot down. It was they were, we were called, you know, anti-trans, transphobic. We hate these children. All this kind of stuff, um, you know. And then they threatened to kind of, you know, protest protest us away from it. Basically, um, now that didn't happen. It went ahead. Rachel Boyack, who's the MP for Nelson, she. Um, she couldn't hold a protest because they didn't know where the event was being held, but she organised a little sort of march thing in Nelson to support these children who we hate. But that's, you know, that's basically the way the way she said it. And I just thought she made no effort to come to the conference to find out what was actually said. Uh, there were all sorts of things discussed at the conference about, you know, how do you treat children who have gender dysphoria? How you know what are the what are the options? And they talked about gender exploratory theory and or therapy and watchful waiting and affirmation and all the kind of stuff that you would expect. It was open, it was informative, it was civil, um, it was kind. It was all the things that you would hope you would see when you're talking about sexuality and gender with um, with children or about children. And they there's no there's no engagement. So, yeah, and, and no real report from the media on the on the conference either. So as far as anyone's concerned, we sat there and talked about how we could put pitchforks into young people. Um, yeah, that, that's what they would like, like you to, to believe. So, Su- Suzanne, this has been fantastic. We've spoken quite a while and, um, uh, no, very informative. And I, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, this is just – proof that we need to be talking we need to be talking about all these issues and um you know uh, across the aisle and uh finding resolutions because when we in compromises because when we do we will we we help both parties i mean that's what free speech enables us to do it enables us to find a middle ground where we can we can satisfy both parties Mm. i'd just like to finish with one thing and it's a it's a quote that one of the speakers um paraphrased at the conference last week um, and I think it kind of sums up how some of us on the gender critical side feel about how how this has happened and how it's gradually unraveling. And it's by a guy called Charles Mackay who who wrote a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. The interesting thing is he wrote it in 1841. Um, but what he says is men has been well said, thinking herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly, one by one. So we can only hope that those senses continue to um, recover. 
Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.